I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Sophie Thompson from Sophie's Patch. Welcome, Sophie. It's great to be here. We're sitting out on the back deck and I can hear frogs in the background and there were birds in here too. It's beautiful. It's lovely, isn't it? We're, we're surrounded by some plants. We went for a bit of a nature walk before and I was really proud to show off my orchids. And I have to say, you've turned up, Sophie, at the worst time for weeds and I spent three hours <laughs> weeding. Uh, I was so proud. I was just like, oh my God, I like I, I spoke to weed. him this morning and he was really stressed out. <laughs> he <laughs> coming. cut his lawn and do some weeding. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Adrian, was I meant to say? I think we've all got weeds at the moment, and especially when we're busy doing other things. You've got a garden at home. Mm-hmm. You know, you're famous for gardening, and you also like to incorporate the animals in with your garden. It's more than just plants, isn't it, with you? It is. And I'm, so I'm an organic gardener, and I have a three acre property, two acres of which is probably garden or orchard. And I'm passionate about whatever space we've got, we need to green it up. Um, and that's not only for us, that's also for other creatures that might choose to come and live in our gardens. And, you know, the simple pleasure of listening to a frog, to having birds come in, bees, butterflies, lizards, whatever it is, we, you know, um, urban, habit, uh, urban habitat is something that we have to be particularly proactive about. You know, urban wildlife is under under huge stresses and threat at the moment. And so, as far as I'm concerned, every backyard, whether it's a tiny little courtyard or a couple of acres, we can turn into a biodiversity hotspot, which is that buzz phrase, but it's something that's true. Is it something that's hard to do? Like, people say, oh, look, I don't know anything about it. I haven't done horticulture. I plant something and it dies. Is it a hard thing for people to get into, do you think? Well, I think there are some general principles. You know, if you try and plant in our climate, which is summer dry and, you know, we can get temperatures in the 40s, if you're trying to garden um, and plant as we head into summer from mid-spring onwards and you're not prepared to water, it's going to be hard work. But obviously, wherever you live, you work out when the best time to plant is and plant accordingly. And it's fantastic for people to plant some local native plants. Um, But you don't have to have just native plants. You know, um, wildlife loves exotic plants too, so sometimes people feel guilty for wanting to have something else that appeals to them, you know, even like a daisy. But I tell you what, if you put a daisy in your garden, you know, the ladybirds will love you, the hoverflies will love you, the lacewings will love you, all those insects, you know, will be in enjoying it. So, you know, you can have balance in a garden. We don't have to be purists. We don't have to go just down that I must plant local Indigenous plants. If there's something you love and it makes you happy... Right, you can plant that too, um, and it's just about getting out there and having a go. And if you know, the other thing I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about us eating nutrient dense food, and I think the only way we can do that really is if we grow at least part of our own fruits, veggies, and herbs, or we frequent farmers markets, because the food that's mass produced um, isn't nutrient dense. And if we want to grow food, the next thing is how do you grow food that the other creatures don't eat and the best way to do that is to encourage all the good bugs and all the garden guardians and they help you manage the bad bugs. It's an example of a garden guardian. Well, um, ladybirds are an amazing 
you know, Garden Guardian. And yet, if you ask people, say my age or older, and say, who remembers Ladybirds as a child? And, you know, and, and they go, yeah, I remember Ladybirds. And you say, do you reckon there were more Ladybirds around then than there were now? And they go, yes. And you ask them, why is that? And they look a bit dumbfounded and they might go, oh, insecticides. We're using more insecticides. Well, it's not only that. A while ago, we had more flowers in our garden. We actually went for a time where we went into this modern style of landscaping, which I call the monotonous monoculture, which is where you have five strappy leaf plants, pebbles, fake lawn, and, you know, no flowers, no diversity. So, of course, we're not going to have all the beautiful creatures. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's ladybirds, hoverflies, lacewings, all these amazing creatures, praying mantises... All these creatures, you know, let alone the little insectivorous birds that come in and eat eat um, insect pests or the microbats that are also really important. And the thing that reassures me all the time is that you don't have to know what you're doing, right? You've just got to have a go, right, or have a grow. And nice one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like one of your dad jokes. It sure, sure is. <laughs> so, so you've... You know, you've got to plant something and you've also then got to not kill things, as in not use insecticides, not use pesticides, not use herbicides where we can, because otherwise you're trying to encourage all the good guys and then nuking them at the same time. It's interesting what you said, like you're quite right with the ladybugs. I've just spent the last 30 seconds just thinking in my head, there used to be tens of thousands, I can remember swarms of ladybirds Mm -hmm. everywhere when I was a kid but yeah never see them now there's actually a little bit of homework (laughs) if you can find it and I think it's actually on my website there was a fantastic article done by a couple of integrated pest management experts called where have all the ladybirds gone and was it just about ladybirds no it was actually about worldwide bee decline it was about aquatic life decline it was about bird life decline and it was linking it to um, some of the insecticides that we've been using en masse. However, you know, part of it is also the flowers. The other thing that you say to people, who remembers butterflies, you know, being everywhere as a child? And people go, yes, I remember walking down the back lane and, you know, it was filled with butterflies. It was like being in a Disney movie. And then you talk to people and say, well, what was growing down the back lane? They go, I don't know, just all sorts of weeds, you know, stinging nettles and all sorts. And we've become so good at nuking everything. Right? We've got rid of all the stinging nettles. Well, nettles happen to be the food plant for the Australian Admiral butterfly. Now, there is an Australian native nettle, but you're not likely to find that very often. Um, and so if you go pulling out all the nettles, what are the caterpillars of the Australian Admiral butterfly going to eat? And so you're not going to have any of those beautiful butterflies around. So, you know, we need to have a broad understanding of, you know, we've got to plant lots of plants. We've got to try and choose plants that are suitable for birds or or whatever it is that we're trying to attract. Um, And there's lots of fabulous websites that you can go to for those plant lists or if you go along to your nursery or garden centre that's a plant specialist, they will also give you lists of those things. You mentioned about the monoculture front yard with the pebbles and the strap-like leaves and things. And and people would hear you talk about different plants coming in and stuff, and they think, oh, that would devalue my property, you know, my resale value and all these things. And it does look neat and classy, but there's not much living on it. And how do you get that mindset to people? I, the, the place we had in Mount Barker, I, I sold three years ago. When I bought it, it had a lawn. I don't have a problem with lawn. I've got mm-hmm. lawn here, and I've got mm-hmm. an ash tree, and it's lovely and shady, and we can talk about that. But I got rid of all the lawn, and I had all local native plants, a lot of ground covers and things like that. 
and I did it in such a way that it actually looked good too. I think mm. it looked good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't messy. Um, you know, I had the tall area over there, the, the, the lower things here and some rocks and a pond and a sitting area with a, with a fire pit. So I think um, I think I answered your question I was going to get you to answer. Um, <laughs> you make it look good. Own, yeah, own <laughs> sure, yeah, well, yeah. I actually figured it was time for you to say something because I haven't given you a word in. <laughs> no. um, People need to hear you now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, don't get me talking about plants. Um, yeah, but, please. But there, are, <laughs> but there are ways that a diversity of plants in a property can look appealing, aren't there? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, so you have to think about what you want to start to attract. And over a few years ago, I did a garden at the Royal Adelaide Show, and it was called Habitat. And um, at the Royal Adelaide Show, it's inside a big pavilion. It's inside for, you know, 14 days, more or less. It's totally contrived, totally faked. So I was trying to work out how I can get a message across, because obviously I can't have real creatures in there. And I thought, well, if you think about it, there are four key features that all creatures need. One is food, one is water, one is shelter, and sometimes they actually need physically constructed habitats. And then I thought, well, what are all the creatures that live in our garden? Now, I've got a tribe of five kids. So first off, I thought, well, my kids are one of the wild, you know, one of the groups of wildlife in my garden. And you know what? They want the same things. You know, a veggie patch for them is great. You know, a bit of water's cooling on a hot day. You know, shelter so we're not baking in the sun. And then habitat, well, you know, they might want to... I actually built a nest for them, you know, like a tree house or a cubby house or a place you can sit and chill like what we're sitting on now. But it doesn't matter what creature, you know, if we're talking about butterflies, well, butterflies need food. So they for they need nectar-rich food for the butterflies themselves, but they're general, so they'll go to anything. The caterpillars are quite specific. They need a specific caterpillar food. And then do they need water? Yes, they do need water, but they don't actually want like a pond as such. They actually like a little bit of a damp sort of puddle or boggy area do they need shelter well if you're on the top of a hill and you're really windy they're going to get blown off so they do need a little bit of a sheltered sunny spot they don't actually need habitat as such you don't need to build a house for them but if we're thinking birds well you know different types of birds some are insectivorous some are seed eating all that sort of thing and um, some of them birds definitely need water some of them need nesting boxes and you've got them installed around here and we can support wildlife that would nest in hollows because hollows take 80 to 100 years to develop so we could support them. Um, so, you know, if you go through all the different creatures, you can go through that list. There are some that don't need all of those things. But, you know, if you think of whatever the creature you're trying to attract, food, water, um, shelter and whether it also needs a physically constructed habitat. And we were talking earlier about the size of the properties getting smaller. I had a place at Eden Hills that was an upstairs unit and I didn't even have any ground and I just had a balcony and I had some pot plants and I had a bottle brush and it flowered and I saw my very first eastern spinebill, which was cool. So Absolutely. You know, whatever space you've got, one of my concerns is the urban infill that I see happening everywhere, which is where, you know, the traditional quarter-acre block has been bulldozed, carved up, you know, four or five houses put in its place. Now... The, the houses have a bigger footprint so there are less outdoor spaces left and if people don't make active choices they're just sort of advised to pave the lot right now one of the things that's doing that's making our city hotter right and we're more vulnerable to the heat but if the hotter our backyard is it's also less likely we're going to attract the gorgeous other creatures in there you know if it's hotter for us and we don't want to be out there why would any of the other creatures need to be out there too so we can make even if you have only got three metres by three metres, 
you know, think about the choices out there and work out how you can make the conditions out there like a microclimate that's more pleasant and what you can attract into that space. So I don't care how big people's space is, it is possible to green it up and cool it down. Well, we, we find this ash tree here in summertime beautiful and cool and I've got like a hundred eucalypts on this property I wouldn't want to sit under any of those for shade no. and for gum branches dropping on my yeah. head <laughs> but it's lovely and cool under that ash tree. Absolutely so it's about you know especially in our state here we're very vulnerable to the heat you know right across Australia you know heat's the number one natural killer of Australians and as our climate's getting harsher a lot of us are becoming more subject to the urban heat island effect but you know deciduous trees on the hot side of your house can be really good at cooling spaces down uh, or deciduous trees or deciduous vines. So whatever your space is, you know, think about it. If it's facing west and it's baking, if you're not going to want to be there, neither will wildlife too. That's <laughs> a very good point. We're just wrestling a wombat in the background here. We're all quite um, in the wombat. What are you doing, snuffle? Hey? You are nocturnal. Yeah. <laughs> We had ducks wrestling in the pond before, which is, they're supposed to be dying on there. Yeah. Come here, Snuffles. He's, she's waking up now. Yeah, you're yeah. awake. <laughs> right. I'll just go chuck this wombat inside. Don't Put say anything in. interesting until I come back. <laughs> Too late. Too late. <laughs> she starts chewing things. That's why I was like, like, for the last couple of minutes, I've been watching oh, this game. I've been thinking something's going awake. on. <laughs> she's awake, yeah. Just watch at that point. It's, it's how wombats communicate. Yeah. They bite. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing she's not full size because otherwise she'd be butts are rock solid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, and they, yeah, they don't they have like a plate? In, don't they? Oh, they do. Yeah. Um, so you so let her just run around the house. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And she won't chew things. She doesn't chew uh, cords. Oh no, she does. Yep. She yeah, does. She does. <laughs> <laughs> she does all the things. Yeah. yeah so, uh, she does all of that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Not and as I... much as the eclectus parrot. We were talking about the microclimates and microclimates. Um, yeah. I'm an obsessive compulsive gardener and I just think everyone wants to garden. But years ago I remember having a conversation with Chris Daniels and he goes, Sophie, not everyone's gardeners. I said, Oh yes. Well, they should be. Some or something rubbish. like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, Do you know what? Sometimes people will plant a garden because they like birds. And I thought, Oh yes, you're right. You know what? So it doesn't matter whether you come at it from a gardener or you come at it because you love butterflies or whatever it is that gets you in. You know, you need to have that garden to support the other creatures in our garden. And if we just go back to the beneficial insects and the garden guardians, you know, people are very mindful of birds and things like that. But insects is one of those funny things and people get very, you know, I've got this bug on my plant, what do I, what do I nuke it with? Mm. One percent of bugs in your backyard are probably going to be harmful. That means ninety-nine percent are beneficial. They're either doing a good job or they're just doing their job, and they can exist. So please don't go out there nuking everything. Find out what it is. Find out if it's doing any harm, and if it's not doing any harm, let it be. I heard a statistic the other day that forty percent of insects worldwide are under threat. So you know that's that's huge. You know, I remember talking to someone else. We both know Kristen Messenger. And we were talking about centipedes, you know, the big ones that are really cool looking. But they're a little bit scary. And, you know, I've had them in my house, you know, and you hear them coming down the hallway and they make that dreadful, it's like a snake's coming down the the wooden floors. Um, But the fact that they can live for 15 years, right? So, therefore, if you see one under a rock, right, don't go cutting it in half just because it looks like it might bite you, right? You know, anything that's lived for 15 years... Deserves to live. You know, that's a that's a fabulous creature in the garden that's helping to 
eat other insects and it's just part of the, the balance out there. So we've got this thing that we we like nuking things and it's not a good habit as human beings. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I was saying to you before, I get up in front of classrooms and groups of people and things and I talk about habitat and I spill my guts and say, you know, local native plants and habitat nesting boxes and, and then I finish and people come up to me and say, that was really inspirational. We're going to go get a pet lizard now. And I'm like, that's not what I said. Um, and then I pull it back and realise, well, that's how I started. And Steve and I have often talked mm. about this. And I don't know whether this has ever happened before in human history, but there are people with pet lizards. There are people with pet snails. There are people that have pet centipedes. There are people that have rainforest scorpions. And they're developing an appreciation for the environment. And I've often wondered if it's because they're now disjunct from the environment and they subliminally miss it. You know, they go outside and they don't see all these things. Maybe they're connecting with nature through a pet, perhaps. Well, they could be. There's actually, this is more garden-related, but there's this thing called the biophilia hypothesis. That's dreadful for a girl with a lisp. But <laughs> um, it, what it, it says is that as human beings, we have an inherent need to interact with nature. And if we ignore that need, there are dire physical, mental and emotional consequences. Not that it would be good to get outside, that we've become so disconnected now... You know, we, we spend more time in front of a screen than we do in, in front of, you know, real life. Um, so we need to interact with nature. And there's a fabulous guy, if ever anyone wants to read a big picture thing about why we need to connect with nature, there's a guy called Richard Louvre who's written a couple of books. One was called Last Child in the Woods. And it's he's sort of the man that's kick-started the whole nature play movement which is great about getting kids outside connected with nature and then he wrote another book called vitamin n which is about how important it is that we get our dose of vitamin n and even though you think you don't need it you do yeah i couldn't agree with that more and there's a lot of scientific studies out there that, that show that people heal better if they've got a window looking out mm. into nature and even a diversity of nature is supposed to be better than maybe just a, a few species you know the yeah. more species you have and it's obviously so lucky here in the mount lofty ranges that we you know we have such a rich diversity of plants and animals which is great but then i guess on the other hand we've got such small areas left where they exist mm. so it's important i guess that we have gardens that we start putting some stuff back to help these things that's right and you know to understand that you know as say old dead trees which would have been high rise for all sorts of creatures are removed we can support the creatures that would have lived there by having nesting boxes and, you know, whether they're nesting boxes for microbats or birds or whatever it is, you know, understand that these creatures are being displaced and we might need to physically install some habitat for them. I saw at one of your episodes on Gutting Australia mm -hmm. and you were doing not nesting boxes in trees, or you've done that too, but on the ground for reptiles. <laughs> That's right. We made a lizard lounge. Now you've got me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's suddenly in. woken up. <laughs> Steve, come back with reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we made a lizard lounge and we did it in the middle of winter in July and I had these old earthenware pipes. And so basically it's a <laughs> it's just a, a mountain of rocks and, and uh, pipes and, and it's a bit of a jungle. But it was rather funny because we had two... Um, dear people bring along a couple of lizards and one was called Lazardo and one was called Rocky and these gorgeous lizards one was a shingleback and one was a blue tongue so they came along and we built this thing that looked quite nice and had the little sign that said lizard lounge and we'd set it all up and uh, the idea was we put the lizards down and they take some photos for the camera 
life and that'll be great. And I said, um, has anyone thought this through? What they're going to do is they're going to run in all those pipes and hide in this pile. <laughs> oh, no, no, they'll be right. Anyway, what do they do? They run in, hide in the pile. And so then we have to pull the thing apart to get them out, right? And with it TV, you've got multiple takes. And so we pulled it all apart and everyone's going, can anyone remember where this stone went? You know? <laughs> and so if you looked at the continuity of the program of, the, of this lizard lounge, it changed dramatically because they thought it was great and they tried to hide in it. And, um, you know, the reality is I've actually got lizards that live in other places around my garden. I didn't actually need that. But because we have a garden that we open to the public several times a year and we get large volumes of people through, it's about making public statements that people see and they go, oh, wow, you know. But the interesting thing is most people love that segment. Then, of course, there were the people that go, oh, but what about snakes? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, the natural reaction, I guess. But instead of saying, you know, it's a biodiverse garden and we've got everything there, so so it's about thinking about sunning spots for lizards and, you know, what do different creatures need? They need to be able to hide away. We actually put some plants in um, so, you know, that lizards could be sheltered with and um, also um, uh, some things, some of the native grasses that had seeds that they might like to eat. So it's interesting, that area where we put it in, that's about 60 metres long by possibly five metres wide and it's a long strip along our driveway that brings us up to the house and we planted it with local native plants maybe four or five years ago and um, I planted it as my wildlife corridor because I figured, you know, I wanted local Indigenous stuff and it's been a hard slog. Lots of plants have died there because I've got no water there so they have to get planted with the autumn rains or winter rains and they have to cope and it's, you know, baking and hot. But within 12 months of putting that corridor in, we qualified as an official butterfly site with Butterfly Conservation Society. And what that showed me is we're in the middle of farmland, right? We're in the middle of paddocks that are grazed. So there's no remnant vegetation more than, you know, it would be a couple of kilometres from us. And yet the creatures came, right? So if you put in the plants, you'll get that biodiversity happening and It's a funny long strip, but I just thought, you know, this is 60 metres long, 5 metres wide. What that's equivalent to is people's verges, sort Mm. of. It's like you imagine if every verge in Adelaide, instead of having fake turf or, um, you know, something else or or crushed dolomite or whatever they've put down on it. Or just spraying it out. Just spraying it. You know, yes, all that stuff we keep putting on, we could just have every um, corridor a wildlife corridor. And there's some groups around um, Adelaide that are doing that. The, you know, there's ro- the Rosetta Street Greening Group down on City of Charlestown that are doing an amazing job with butterfly corridors. And, you know, that's what we want to do. So what an opportunity that this bit of land out the front that no one really cares for, we could actually create significant habitat, whether it's for butterflies or native bees or whatever it is it's a great and, idea and like you said it works really quickly as well because um, what was it a year ago when you helped my wife adrian helped my wife choose some native plants for just a three meter by five meter patch at our block and we get so many butterflies and things like that like so but i'm sure that we've got the biggest colony of skinks 
in Australia. <laughs> now, awesome. In our garden, like you, when we walk down our steps to our house, they just sit there on on the steps. They don't even get out of our way now. They're just not bothered by us at all. But I'm sure that they've increased. They were always there, but I'm sure there's far more now. And blue tongues everywhere. I've got four blue tongues living on. Just I know where they are. Like they live two under steps and. Yep. And so they sorts. just live in those nooks yeah. and crannies. Mm. You know, if we have these gardens that are totally controlled and totally, you know, managed, we need a bit of wild, right? Some people don't like that. Some people like control, but... Yeah, I mean, even if you... you I mean, I've, I've got a friend who's got a habitat garden and he's a purist and he's got all locally Indigenous plants. As soon as you pull up your dri- his driveway, he's just absolutely surrounded by locally Indigenous plants. And it's, it's great for a plant nerd like me, but people would turn up and go look, I can see what you're doing, but that's not what I'm going to do at my place. Mm. And I've always thought he would be better served if he, I would never say this to his face, but if he cleared a bit and made a bit of lawn and had an amenities area and a spot where you could have a picnic um, and just a trail that then leads into it. So that Absolutely. people like a sign, you know, I can, yeah. oh, oh, that's what that is. That's that over there. And I can spend time sitting in my safety European tree lawn area and then I can ease into it. We came along to one of the talks you did about native bees, and that was quite interesting. There are, there are some simple things people can do around their gardens to attract native bees, aren't there? Absolutely. And I've been very fortunate to be involved in this incredible project that put native bee, BNBs, all the way along the Torrens from the hills to the sea. And I am not the native bee guru, but I came along for the community engagement because that's what I'm good at. And so we installed these native bee BNBs as big public builds and we started off with eight of them and there's since been more. And um, the one that, that we were at was that... Um, uh, Mount Barker and you know I just did one at Unley and last weekend and the weekend before it was tennis and dunes so they're going on everywhere and people are not quite sure what native bees are so often when you say oh you know native bees they go yes we've got some we've got some native bees they're in the gum tree out the back right and you know we hear them buzzing they're not native bees they're feral honey bees so what native bees are is actually the native species of bees that existed in Australia before the honeybees came here. While they're not often understood or recognised, there are actually, and it depends who you listen to, but there's at least 1,700 species of native bees in Australia. That's astonishing. Isn't that huge? Now, they actually say it's closer to 2,000, so often you'll hear, so I've given up worrying, what it, whatever it is, it's a lot, right? Now, of those 2,000-odd species, there's about a dozen that are colony hive-forming that give you honey, and they're sometimes called sugar bag bees or stingless native bees. Now, they live Sydney and north, you know, so you'll see Costa splitting hives, you'll see Jerry Colby Williams with hives of them. They're great up there, but they don't exist down here in the south. So just to put it into perspective, Adelaide has about 300 species of native bees on the Adelaide Plains, and they range from tiny little things that are a couple of mils to things that are, you know, bigger than a honeybee. And these creatures are really important for pollination. And there are some native plants that can only be pollinated by native bees. So it's really important. They're sort of like an indicator of biodiversity in a healthy environment. Um, But there's three main types of habitat they have. Now, the first thing is you need to have flowers for them. And ideally, you have local native flowers. 
for the native bees. But I will say that in my garden, while I still have that wildlife corridor with lots of local native plants, I often see native bees on the exotics too. And I got concerned about that. And I actually said to the native bee guru, Dr. Kutcher Hogendorn, I said, oh, look, I'm really worried. I see all these native bees on these exotic plants. And she said, oh, don't worry about it, Sophie. It's just like going to a smorgasbord, you know. Tonight you feel like a bit of Chinese. Tomorrow you'll have Mediterranean, you know. They can they can mix it up. It's not a problem because I've got native plants for them too. They eat Chinese. <laughs> Right. Well, I think that wow. was meant to be the Chinese plant in my garden and the, or the Mediterranean plant in my garden, the Mediterranean nectar and pollen. And so, you know, these bees are really important pollinators and they've got three specific types of habitat. One type of habitat is easy to do and that's just earth. So over half the species in Adelaide, so over half those 300 species are earth-dwelling. So what we should do for them is leave them some earth. Now, me as a gardener has been telling everyone to mulch, 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 and more mulch. And actually, you need to leave part of your garden unmulched so bees can get to the soil. And this is where, um, you know, they'll lay their babies, put a little food store and, and seal it up. So some are earth-dwelling. Um, and they like sort of clay-rich soils. So Adelaide's pretty lucky. We've got a fair bit of clay-rich soil around, so that's pretty good. Um, some of them would naturally um, dwell in borer holes. So say you've got an old dead tree and you look and you see all those borer holes, the native bees would take advantage of those holes. Um, and we can recreate that by having hardwood that we drill holes into. And uh, the holes need to be certain... There are certain specifics to this, which I'll say in the end, because there's lots of people now selling these little cutesy um, insect hotels in all sorts of large stores near the airport and things like that. And uh, a lot of them, <laughs> the specs, like there are quite a lot of specs. Um, the holes need to be 10 to 15 centimetres deep. So if you look at most of the commercial ones, the holes are not that deep. The holes need to be between 2 and 8 mil diameter. When you look at a lot of the, the commercially built ones, the holes in, say, bamboo or whatever, are way too big. So, you know, you're far better just to get a block of wood and drill it out yourself. And then the last sort of habitat is pithy stems. So in nature, you know, if you had a... Well, you know, if you've got a grapevine or something like that, that's actually great. You can use those canes or you can use bamboo canes um, and they will, they will, you know, use those to put their babies in and the food store in and then they'll seal it up. So you can actually create native bee... Um, accommodation in your garden by having um, wood that's drilled, by having bundles of bamboo or something similar and by having some either clay packed in earth, earthenware pipes or clay packed in PVC downpipes that you put holes in or just leaving some of the garden unmulched. And all the specifics about this are on the native bee, BNB, so letters BNB project um, page and you'll, if you just Google that, you'll find that. And there's all the specifics on how you make the appropriate accommodation. But for gardeners thinking, what's in it for me? Now, your audience is probably all motivated already, but sometimes people need to know what's in it for them. So we don't get honey from our native bees here because they're not colony forming. We get pollination. And there's a particular type of pollination that's really beneficial to the home gardener, and that's called buzz pollination. And that's because our tomatoes, our eggplants, our capsicums, our kiwi fruit, our blueberries all require buzz pollination. So if you've got one particular native bee called a, a blue-banded bee in your garden, it's going to buzz pollinate your tomatoes. And that basically means that your tomatoes are going to be bigger and they're going to taste better. 
and that's even scientifically proven because they can do they can count the number of seeds in a tomato and seeds equals flavor so if your tomatoes are pollinated by blue banded bees they're going to taste better so if you need a reason to get interested in native bees if for no other reason but you want better tasting tomatoes that's all good and the interesting thing about native bees too is they don't need water they get enough moisture from the nectar and pollen they get from plants and flowers um, whereas honeybees, who we also need to support, they do need water and they need shallow water because they can't swim. Blue banded bees are stunning, aren't they? They're extraordinary. <coughs> and, and if you've never... People often say it, it's sort of like they've seen the light. When they've seen their first blue banded bee, they get all excited and, and they're buzzing with excitement, actually. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, that's another yeah, Adrian joke. I'm, t- I'm taking that right away. <laughs> <laughs> I do the dad jokes around here. <laughs> so, He's so, taken offence to it. <laughs> that's right. So, so how you know you've got a blue banded bee if, is if you're out in your garden and you've got a garden that's got lots of flowers in it, and it's late in the day in the warm weather, so the blue-banded bees are only active in warmer weather in our climate, and you hear this loud buzzing, and to me it's like a blowfly. Like you almost expect to see a blowfly somewhere, and if you can just tune in to where that buzzing's come from, you'll see this beautiful large bee, bigger than a honeybee, erratic flying behaviour, lovely aqua blue with black stripes, Mm. And um, it's a blue-banded bee and it's, you know, just making its way around your garden. So, you know, the, the most exciting thing is when you see your first blue-banded bee, I reckon. And you get better yields than your tomatoes. Yeah, you do. That's and it's unreal. scientific. You know, I, I go to a lot of talks like like you do and I listen, I, got, I attend to a lot of talks where I'm not speaking to and I've heard Kutcher Hogendorn talk lots of times and I remember saying to someone, oh, you'll get better tomatoes and they go, how do you know? And I thought, oh, because I think Kutcher said so. <laughs> and he called that's me out. Enough. Yeah, that's good. Well, it was good enough for me at the time. And he called me out on it. So I emailed Kutcher and I said, Kutcher, I'm sure you said that tomatoes are tastier and uh, they're better. And she said yes. And then she sent me like this 20-page spread of the scientific proof that, you know, uh, they've counted the seeds. So ultimately flavour comes down to seed count. And so no seeds, as in seedless watermelon, anything like that, won't have the same flavour as the old-fashioned varieties that had the seeds in them. Wow. And that's all those secret things that go on in a garden that people don't consider. I mean, I heard a story once about somebody that built this state-of-the-art greenhouse and it was so good and they had all these tomato plants. They didn't get a single tomato because nothing could get in there. (laughs) (laughs) It was first year of Zita doing her veggie patch. There was something that she grew and I can't remember what it was now, but she got the first couple were okay. But then it just went downhill and they were all just rubbish eggplants or something. Eggplant? Could be eggplant. Yeah, yeah. it was something like that. And someone said to her, oh, how did you keep them then? She went, well, insect net over. And they instantly went, there's your problem. Yeah. You put an insect net over them, so no insects got to them, so they weren't pollinated properly. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. You know, we need insects a lot more than we're aware, even though we don't necessarily like some. I'm, I ha- I'm yet to develop an appreciation for mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> what are they good for? Well, they're, food, they're food for <laughs> They're food for microbats and food oh, for microbats. There you go. Yeah. Did I read somewhere that bees have just been announced to be the most important insect in the world or animal in the world? Well, actually, last year was the inaugural year of World Bee Day because the United Nations... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) World Bee Day. That's a bum-cleaning device in France, isn't it? A bee day. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. And you said it perfectly like, that's a B-Day. <laughs> well, Sorry. us Aussies are so uncouth, we don't have B-Days, actually. Uh, silly, I thought they were silly, baguettes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll never think of that the same. Carry on again. Actually, it's not far from World Naked Gardening Day either, now that I think about it. So oh, wow. One's in May and one's in June. <laughs> okay, so, so yes, bees, so they announced World... Um, World Bee Day because, you know, we need to understand that one in every three mouthfuls of food we take requires bees for pollination and um, bees are, you know, suffering worldwide decline due to quite complex factors. It's not simple, but we can certainly do things in our home gardens to encourage them. So so bees are vital. So are, are honeybees, the introduced honeybees, are they bad for Australia or...? No, they're not bad at all. And, um, you know, I've got a beehive in my, a managed beehive in my garden too, and I've got a lot of what we call feral bees that are out there doing their thing. But what's happened in recent years is as world bee decline, which is linked to, um, you know, mites and all sorts of other things, so the varroa mite that we've probably heard about in Australia, so the varroa mite has affected bees elsewhere in the world, and they say it's not if it's going to get to Australia, they say it's when. And when it arrives in Australia, you can manage hives with the right treatment, right, will be okay. But the feral honeybees that are everywhere, because they aren't managed, they will be quite susceptible to losses from these mites. And the value of those feral bees in pollination, in agriculture, isn't understood. No one can quantify it because no one's ever... We've just taken all this stuff for granted, like nature, like we always do. We take everything for granted. We just take what we can get. And because we don't understand how much pollination is taking place, um, we haven't quantified it. So because all of a sudden people have realised, well, if, you know, the feral honeybees that are actually doing a lot, contributing a lot to agriculture and horticulture, if they're taken out of the picture, what are we going to have? Suddenly, there's been more interest in native bees, and uh, Kutch has got research to do some amazing research on revegetation around farms. And you know, ultimately, it's about not using insecticides. You know, not using anything that ends inside, and providing food for them. And you know, so that we can encourage their numbers, and then they can fill the gap. And they say they're less likely to be affected by the varroa mite because they're not colony forming. So if a mite gets into a colony of, you know, 30,000 bees, they're all there and they're all going to be subject to it. But because our native bees are solitary, they think that's why they'll do better. And um, hopefully you'll get Katja on one time and she can fix up any of the messes I've made in this explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's very interesting. And all the, like we said before, like the secret things that go on, I was, I was standing in a patch of bush the other day with a friend of mine and everything was green and there would have been over 100 different species of plant. It was just a patch of scrub in Mylor. And I, thought, I was thinking about it, like, no one comes and waters any of this and we've just had a drought and everything here is thriving and everything's got everything that it needs to survive it's got its pollinators and you know seed dispersal methods and all the things i always talk about on this show uh, all the soil microorganisms all those things are going on and it's overwhelming and you think i want to do a habitat garden i can't possibly know any of that stuff and i don't think anybody does mm. and i think that's okay isn't it yeah you don't have to know all that stuff i, I wouldn't get concerned with the details just plant something you know in your garden if you make sure you've got something of all the different heights 
you know, all the different um, layers, you know, from upper storey, you know, you need some trees, you need some shrubs, you need some ground covers, you need some strappy leaf plants. And then you want to make sure that within that you've got something flowering all year round, really. And if you've, you've got something that's flowering all year round that is, say, a native plant, you're going to have it covered, and then you might leave a, a bowl out for water for birds and, you know, you might have a little soak spot that you leave for the butterflies. But don't get bogged down in the details. Just have a go. And, you know, do take advice from whoever you're buying these plants from because, for example, in South Australia, and I'm aware that this podcast, you know, is not just local, but in South Australia we're about to go into six months of no rain. This is a typical weather pattern for us. We have six months of rain over the cooler weather and then we have six months of no rain, right? So that's typically our weather pattern. So if you're planting your garden at the start of the six months of no rain, even though it might be a local Indigenous plant and it might be water-wise once established, don't go thinking you don't need to water it, right? You know, so, so take advice on when you put the plants in. So, you know, if you're desperate to do a wildlife garden, you say, well, I can't water, I haven't got enough water for the house, let alone the garden. Start that in autumn and plant with the autumn rains and then the plants have got six months to get established before the hot weather comes and you'll have far greater successes. So if you use a little bit of common sense and just be brave and put things in of different sorts and and watch what comes. And there's so many great resources out there. Actually, um, I love the butterfly gardening book that's done by the Butterfly Conservation Society here in South Australia. It's fantastic. And I just got my hands on their new moth book. And that's fascinating too because, you know, all the different moths and I'm looking through at these amazing caterpillars going, I've seen that and I've seen that and I've seen that. So, you know, there are great, easily digestible books and in the books it says, well, this is the plant you need for the caterpillars, you know, or this is the plant, you know, these are the plants the butterflies will feast on. So if you make sure that, you know, with a little bit of help, but you don't need to buy the book, you can borrow it from the library or you could buy it or you could just get online and go to these websites. There's so much information out there. We're information rich at the moment. We've just got to put a bit of action behind it. Yeah, I love that. And, and if you're going to do that, you know, planting from trees down to shrubs and you know, and then just sit out there for half an hour and just look into that garden. And I guarantee you'd be interested in it after a while. Absolutely. Your blood pressure will be down. Your stress rate will be down. Yeah. You know, the sad, the sad fact is, I, I, I was doing a talk today, a health and wellbeing talk, the statistic is that 51% of Australians use social media to manage their stress. Mm. How depressing is that? That makes you stressed, depressed, socially isolated, you name it, anxious. 51% of us are using social media to manage our stress. Wow. Do you know the best thing to manage your stress? Sit outside. Look at nature. Go for a walk. Just sit there and have a cup of tea and look at your newly planted garden. Absolutely. It's amazing. I love it. And if you can grow some food, you've got yep. no chemicals, you've got vine-ripened food. Yep. Nutrient-dense food. It's all good. Love it. Happy gardening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, thanks so much. I've been Thank meaning you. to get you on for so long. Great to finally sit down with you and, and do it. It's great to be invited. So thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Thanks so much. And, guys... Thank you for listening. 